Welcome to Jay on Broadway for Wednesday, August 30th, 2017. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I am Broadway star's James Marino. James, before we start, I want to say happy birthday to my mom. Again, she's probably not listening. She's probably actually, by the time this comes out, either at the airport or on a plane heading up to Ohio. But nonetheless, I'm putting happy birthday wishes to my mother out into the world. So there we go. Um, Another thing that I need to put out into the world is... Apparently, James, I didn't know if you knew this or not, but there are multiple large cities in the country of Canada. No. And I didn't I didn't know. I'm, I'm an American. We don't know anything about any countries other than the good old U.S. of A. But uh, on Monday's episode, I said that Town would be having its pre-Broadway engagement uh, at Toronto's Citadel Theater. There is a Citadel Theater in Toronto. Unfortunately, it is just not the one that is doing Hades Town. That's actually the Citadel Theater in Edmonton, which you got to cut me some slack, James. There's only 3,475 kilometers between Toronto and Edmonton. So it's just a hop, skip, and a jump for those of you that are metrically challenged. That's 2,159.265 miles. So uh, sorry about that. I, I, apparently, I got some people's hopes up in the Toronto area. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, the great one could be in uh, the Hades Town. Uh, he he played for the Winnipeg Jets, uh, not the Edmonton Oilers, though. Um, Wayne Gretzky, uh, I believe. Of course, now that I say that off the top no, of my head, no, I no, no, no. Gretzky played for the Edmonton Oilers, didn't he? We're gonna have I to check this now. Google. Hold on, Wayne. Oh, I believe it was the Winnipeg Jets. Wayne Gretzky played for... Nope, you were right, the Edmonton Oilers. Good for you. Absolutely. All right. That's right. Him and Mark Messier played together. I knew it was one of the Canadian teams. I just couldn't remember which one. So, again, I know nothing about Canada, so I apologize. Uh, Come from away. (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Oh, anyway. Okay. Um, Now we got to get serious, James, because unfortunately we do have a few sad things we want to talk about at the top of the show. First, tonight, three-time Tony-winning book writer Thomas Meehan will be honored by the Broadway community as all of Broadway's marquees will dim their lights for one minute beginning at 7.45 p.m. If you're in the theater district, take a minute uh, to remember all of the wonderful work that Meehan brought into the world, including one show that we're going to talk about a little later today. He, I mean... I started thinking about it after we talked about him passing away last week. And it's just the scope and the the variety of work that he brought into the world. Um, Not just the three shows that he won Tony's for and Annie, the producers and Hairspray. Those are all so funny of shows, but so uniquely different from each other as well. Um, It's just really a a legacy and and a a collection of work that needs celebrated. So if you're in the theater district at about 745, take a look at the marquees and remember everything that he's done. And then unfortunately, we have a passing of another Tony-winning theater writer that we need to mention today. As yesterday, we learned that Bernard Pomerantz, the Tony-winning playwright responsible for The Elephant Man, had passed away due to complications from cancer. He was 77 years old. Um, he passed away in New Mexico, where he he lived. He went to the University of Chicago before kind of striking out in the theater world in London, where he founded a theater and where many of his plays, including The Elephant Man, premiered. Um, James, we're having to talk uh, about way too many of these theater luminaries passing away lately so we hate to do it but um you know as as willie loman once said uh, or actually it was willie loman's wife once said attention must be paid yes large uh large theatrical family and mm-hmm. so uh we have to take the good with the bad i guess 
and uh, yep. remember these people fondly. All right, first up in the news, The Lightning Thief is going to make a tour next year. Yeah, yesterday, producers announced that The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical, will embark on a national tour beginning in the fall of 2018. Obviously, the cast and performance locations are yet to be announced, but the star of the show's off-Broadway run, Chris McCarroll, tweeted tweeted yesterday, quote, full-blown, high-budget, our production tour. Perhaps see you out there? So I guess there is at least a chance that he will be a part of the tour's cast. Off-Broadway, he was accompanied uh, on stage by Carrie Compare, Sarah Beth Pfeiffer, Jonathan Ravive, James Hayden Rodriguez, Kristen Stokes, and George Salazar, who was nominated for a Drama Desk Award for his work on the show. James, we don't often see off-Broadway shows touring, especially not in anything that can be described as full-blown and high-budget. Um, especially if they don't have something, you know, like Disney behind them where Disney toured um, Peter and the Starcatcher. Uh, but that was a much different thing. So do you think that there's a possibility that the producers could be trying to go old school here and putting the show out on a tour and attempts to get enough interest and perhaps investments for an eventual Broadway run? Hey, that's uh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that aspect of it. Um if it does tour really well, I could see them bringing it in, or maybe they've looked at the uh, the Matt Tamanini uh, Broadway map patent pending, um, <laughs> and uh, realized that maybe we should just take it out on tour, and eventually there'll be a theater available. But that's really interesting. Well, we've seen over the years, uh, over the last few years, especially with things like Hairspray and Motown bringing their tours in for Broadway runs. Um, perhaps it might do something like that. We also have recently seen um, Bring It On the Musical did an actual pre-Broadway national tour. Obviously, that happened quite a bit um, in years past, but hasn't been as frequent here recently. But perhaps it be, could be trying to do one of those two routes. Obviously, it's not announced to something pre-Broadway, but I know lots of people who love it. And it actually had uh, CD release parties last night. Our friend Robbie Rizel was working them with Broadway Records, and apparently they were quite enthusiastic um so uh uh who knows there maybe there's enough fans out there of demigods throwing lightning bolts uh to sustain a broadway run <laughs> all right next up in the news the new york times lays out the great comet controversy timeline <sighs> here we go again i hate doing this i just i'm so over it i not over whatever i just i hate the awfulness of this whole situation. But yesterday, James, the New York Times, as Michael Polson published a story chronicling the entire sordid history of the fall of the Great Comet on Broadway. For the piece, Paulson spoke to about two dozen people. But as he wrote, many would only speak anonymously, quote, to protect their ability to continue working in an industry with long memories and few jobs. James, there wasn't a ton of new news brought up in the article, uh, other than that the music team had started working with a TV star on the score in L.A. before he or she backed out because of the controversy. I say he or she because Paulson didn't actually specifically say that it was someone to take over for Pierre, um, so I don't want to assume too much from what he wrote. Um, however, despite the fact that there wasn't a ton of new news, it was still pretty jarring to see all of it collected in one place. You know, James, I've said before, this whole thing just it just makes me sad. And, and I don't know that this article did anything to shed a ton of new light on the situation. I kind of think it might have just kicked the hornet's nest a little bit more unnecessarily. But the one thing that I took away from it 
was that there are likely to be ramifications felt from this horribly handled situation for years to come, not only in individual people's careers um, in in how controversies are handled, how, how controversies are discussed on social media, what types of projects um, get developed. We'll probably never actually know the impact that this has. But I think it's fairly, fairly safe to say at this point that it's not just going to be about Great Comet, that it's going to have long-reaching tentacles that aren't going to be fun tentacles. They're going to be like Sea Witch Ursula tentacles that we really, really don't want to deal with and have some pretty negative uh, impacts on the theater community. So, um, like you said, there's not a lot of um, new information, but what was helpful to me was to see it all consolidated into one place. So... This is a real um, interesting article for those who are studying producing, and it kind of lays out, uh, you know, various things that you need to watch out for when you're producing and handling crisis management and things along these lines. And uh, let's learn from our uh, mistakes of our brothers. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really good article. I, I encourage people to go read it. So Library of Congress digitizes Alexander Hamilton documents. Like the yeah. musical? No, no actual documents from Alexander Hamilton. It's it's apparently we talked about the pop culture significance of Hamilton on yesterday's show, and now it's reaching all the way into the Library of Congress and getting them to digitize previously just hard copy documents. But uh, yes, with the enormous popularity of the musical Hamilton, the Library of Congress has now digitized a collection of historical documents written by founding father Alexander Hamilton. The collection consisting of approximately 12,000 items dating from 1708 to 1917 are now available online. Obviously he wasn't alive that entire time. Um, James being quite honest, I'm surprised that they uh, didn't make this part of the Hamilton app. I mean, Mm. you know, more content, the better. Um, I'm sure maybe the link an update, you know, (laughs) very good point. Um, the collection of documents includes things, um, from Hamilton's impoverished uh, Caribbean boyhood events in the lives of his family and that of his wife, Elizabeth, his experience as a revolutionary war officer, the continental Congress, the constitutional convention, many, uh, correspondence between him and other members of the early United States government. James, I have a feeling that this just gave Jillian over at the Hamilcast, like another two, three, four years of material <laughs> for episodes at the Hamilcast. And, you know, we love, everything Hamilcast and Jillian over here. So uh, I'm excited to see if she eventually dives into this stuff because this would definitely be about as firsthand as you can get uh, on a musical. Um, So I, you know, cool. I, I think that this is kind of what Lynn wanted to do with the musical to bring attention to the life of a, of a, of a founding father that was often forgotten. I don't know that he ever anticipated it would have this much impact on the legacy of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, we need to find a a GIF or a GIF of uh, Julian GIF, Zavala. GIF, GIF. GIF. <laughs> I, I prefer GIF too. I hate the GIF okay. thing, but you yeah. know, try to be equal. Of uh, Julian Pensavalli's head just blowing up. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> well, I know her and Patrick Hines uh, are recording their uh, true crime obsessed podcast tomorrow, so maybe I'll see if Patrick can uh, can come up with something. All right. Uh, so in the recommendation section, what do we have? 
Oh, I got three articles that are very, very different, but I wanted to point them all out. First, in the uh, New York Post yesterday, the acclaimed and accomplished columnist Michael Riedel uh, wrote a new article about Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. We've talked about this new production that is happening over in the UK uh, a number of times throughout the year. Uh, but he talks about the changes that Mel Brooks and company, including Thomas Meehan, um, had made to the script, condensing it down from about three hours when it ran on Broadway to just about two hours now. It's apparently having a tremendous run in Newcastle, which it'll be uh, playing at through September 9th before it heads to the Garrick Theater in London's West End beginning on October 10th. That's actually the opening night. Um, as I said, Meehan was working on the updated book in New York before they left for the UK, but his health wouldn't allow him to travel to London. Apparently, Mel Brooks is in rehearsals and tweaking things. He's very energized and very excited about the project. In fact, He's so excited, he felt that they had to have Shuler Hensley back in the role of the monster. He wanted him so much, didn't think anyone else could do that role, that he actually decided that he would pay the Tony winner extra above his salary and would pay for his living expenses in London out of his own pocket. Um, pretty pretty uh, uh, nice move from the show's creator. The rest of the cast is um, UK-based. But Riedel ends his article saying, quote, if things go as well in London as they did in Newcastle, this new young Frankenstein may be back on Broadway next season. James, we've heard this uh, for quite a while now. If you remember back, there was a one-night screening of young Frankenstein um, at the Hollywood Bowl, and Mel Brooks showed up and said, ah, we might be bringing this back to Broadway, blah, blah, blah. You never know if those things will happen, but it sure seems like this is on the path to bringing those dream, uh, those dreams to fruition. That's really exciting. That's one of my favorite movies. I love yeah, that movie. It's such a great movie, and the um, it's good that they're revising it. <laughs> I've seen. I saw a local production, a college production down here in Orlando, and I loved it. I, I mean. I, sure, you can always tighten things up, but I didn't feel like it needed a ton of trimming. But maybe that's just me because of, you know, I love the movie so much. I was going to I was, you know, predisposed to enjoying it. But, I, you know, OK. Mm -hmm. All right. What is the odd fate of the Times Square Theater? Oh, man, this is brutal. OK, so yesterday, New York real estate website, therealdeal.com, which is a URL, James, and a domain that I'm surprised you don't own, um, had a really interesting story about the trials of the long vacant Times Square Theater. There have been many projects that have tried to take advantage of the space in recent years that fell flat. Most recently, that failed Broadway 3D experiment where they had like Hugh Jackman singing Oh, What a Beautiful Morning and Sierra Boggess doing stuff from Phantom. Um, it was supposed to be in like 3D holograms or something. I don't know. And that it just fell after they'd been paying rent on the space for four years. The theater is controlled by a nonprofit organization called the New 42nd Street, which, get this, has a 99-year lease on the theater. Um, the theater is located on 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues, and at one point was a 1,032-seat theater. But over the years, whether it was theatrical or commercial, nothing has been able to make the space work. Uh, you talk about Jillian's head exploding with all of those new Hamilton documents. I can imagine that Jen Tepper's head just explodes every time she walks by knowing that there's an empty Broadway theater on 42nd Street that no one can seem to figure out what to do with. But the article doesn't get into super detailed reasons why each of these projects failed to move forward, other than kind of mentioning that maybe it was cursed. Um, so who knows, James? I think 
apparently there's some other issues that there's only really one entrance into the building and it's on 42nd street and it's kind of landlocked by the lyric so they can't there's no room for a stage door and for loading in sets or whatever so i guess that might be a problem but man it just seems like if a nonprofit has the lease for 99 years someone's got to be able to get in there and say we can do something with it whether it's a theater which we would obviously prefer or something else it just seems like man that's crazy that that building sits there and as big of prime real estate as we have in the country unused hmm so yeah i mean i wonder what the impetus is behind uh this coming to light now i mean evidently this has been sitting there for a while well, they just had another – they had another um, developer fall through. They, a lease had yeah. been signed, but they weren't able to get um, things. It was a, it was a Singapore-based entertainment and multimedia company, leased the space, um, but they couldn't get the city to sign off on their plans because it is a historically preserved building. So because they weren't able to get these – I don't know, waivers or whatever from the city, the uh, which were required for the lease to go through, it subsided and they just moved on. So I I don't know. Well, maybe somebody should make them an app that would help them to... F- <laughs> oh, wait, no. Okay, so there's a different app that there's a new app that's released to aid Broadway in its design process. Yes. Yesterday, Forbes had a pretty in-depth article about a new app called Production Pro, which is an app that's designed to provide a platform for theater professionals to collaborate throughout their creative process. It apparently coordinates information and ideas and multimedia things and visual and audio in uh, in real time, you can discuss and create individual scenes together with people, whether you are in the same room on the app or on the app in various different places working remotely. Apparently, already Hamilton and Groundhog Day are using the app. It was created by a producer named Alexander Libby, who is an associate producer with director Stephen Daldry, who theater fans know well, on the movie Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. And they were working on a specific scene that they couldn't just visualize, and they said, I need to be able to see this. And that's say the idea for the app was born there are subscriptions there are enterprise packages that start at five hundred dollars a month um which seems like a lot of money for you and me but not a whole lot for a production um you know to to throw down on an app that might eventually work uh you know so like chris catelli who is a tony winning choreographer who's working on um spongebob now but was doing spongebob and war paint last year in chicago working across the street from each other he apparently used the app to work with his associate choreographers when he couldn't be in the room that was rehearsing across the street or whatever so apparently this is something that is so um positive in the community that disney just invested some money into the project. Um, So now apparently Tommy Schumacher and all of his uh, collaborators are going to be using this app as well since they part own it. So um, the fact that you're seeing it already being adapted by major Broadway productions and from Disney, um, it actually putting their money where their mouth is and being investors, not just, you know, users shows you that this might be something that, you know, kind of revolutionize how revolutionizes how Broadway creative teams collaborate together. They should have like a Jerry Mitchell button. <laughs> Jerry Mitchellize this. Just full out, full out, full, full out. out. Yeah, yeah. You hit a full out button. I love it. it you know, <laughs> are you a fan of? Uh, <laughs> oh my god, I'm totally blank on it. 
What's the uh, Spinal Tap? This is Spinal Tap. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it goes to 11. It goes to 11. Jerry Mitchell is 11. Jerry Mitchell is 11. Yours only goes to 10, but Jerry Mitchell, he goes to 11. Oh, I love Jen and I have talked many times on Some Like It Pop about about our love for Christopher Guest mockumentaries. So, yeah, absolute. (laughs) I love A Mighty Wind and Waiting for God. Oh, so good. Guffman is just great for the theater people. And Best in Show. Best in Show wasn't my favorite. I prefer Mighty Wind over Best in Show for the more recent ones. But yeah, you know, or thanks for your consider or, uh, for your consideration yeah. as I mean, well. Best in Show. Do you know Crazy Dog People? No, crazy Dog Owners. Crazy I'm allergic to dogs, so I just yeah. generally avoid all things dogs. So yeah, that's. I think that's <laughs> what you missed there. Hey, uh, I, I bought a domain today. You know what it is? Uh, please tell me. It is uh, DisasterFashion.com. DisasterFashion.com. Yeah. What is this? Hmm? What is this all about? Where did that come from? Where, well, type it in, DisasterFashion.com. Where does it go? Okay. Oh, Lord. On the air. DisasterFashion.com. And I'm working around my microphone, so my fingers aren't working. DisasterFashion.com. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> All right, Matt, why don't you get us out of here? Oh, oh Lord, do it. Just type in disaster fashion. <laughs> oh, God. Thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. I think people can understand that the, our banter really is not scripted. We have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> Just comes out of it. Anyway, you can find me on Twitter, PWW Matt. Sound like a pop. Subscribe. Whatever. <laughs> and my name is James Marino from BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. I can stop buying domains whenever I want to. I just do it to be social. Um, Matt and I will be back and talk with you on Thursday, which is the uh, fourth day in a three-day week. And we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.